Well, you probably know what it's like to be surprised by life and to find yourself in a different space than you had, had planned to be. I have to believe that's something of what Joseph is experiencing in the passage we're about to read in Genesis chapter 40. I'm not sure he could have sung uh, at every point and turn those beautiful words we just sang, my God, my portion, and my love. There must have been senses of abandonment and struggle and difficulty that overtook him during his time in prison there in Egypt, very different than the dream that he had dreamed many years ago, this dream that had turned into something of a nightmare. Our lives can be like that. Who among us, if we've lived any length of time, could say, my life has turned out just how I thought it would. Everything has gone just according to plan. Madeline Engel, writer, poet, many of you probably have read her books, has a pretty funny poem entitled Act 3, Scene 2. That's the title of the poem. This is a few lines from it. Someone has altered the script. My lines have been changed. The actors are shifting in their roles. They come in when I don't expect them to. They say things that I have not written down. And worst of all, I'm being upstaged. I thought I was writing this play. Act 3, scene 2. Maybe you're in Act 3, scene 2. Maybe that's where you are this morning as we approach the Word of God. I, I thought I was writing this play, and you're coming to find out there's a... There's another writer, and he, he may, at the moment in which you're in, he, he may have you in a tragic role, but that's not your final role. He has a plan. Joseph is learning that. Joseph is learning that as we approach Genesis chapter 40 together, and as Joseph is learning that, let's, let's learn that with him. Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with the two officers, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams. There is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, 
This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. And there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh among you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help now as we approach this, your word from Genesis chapter 40. We want to know the meaningfulness of this word, the significance of it for us as your people. And we come now begging you, asking you to speak to us from it, guiding us into a deeper understanding of what it is that you would have us to know. And in knowing it, to build a closer relationship with you and to better answer the call that you have placed on our lives. Lord, would you meet us now in this word? And would you let this word live? Live in the hearts and lives of us, your people. And would you buy it? Change us. And make us into the people you would have us to be. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe some of you will know the name of Christian Wyman. He's a fairly well-known poet. I think actually was an editor for quite a few years of Poetry uh, Magazine. He's written a number of books of poetry. He's also written um, a remarkable number of uh, essays uh, on writing, but also on um, philosophy, on theology, on uh, psychology. He uh, was actually a struggling, you might say, um, Believer, unbeliever, depending on the day you might catch him. In fact, he, he wrote a, a recollection of kind of confessions of, an, of, a, um, of a believing unbeliever, one who is struggling to believe in the faith. And it's called My Bright Abyss. It's the name of the, the essay. Uh, in it, he, he speaks of the suffering that, that he's undergone, the struggle that he's faced, both with doubt and with depression and a number of other issues in his own life. And he, but he keeps coming back to recognizing that though he forgets God, he forgets the truth, he often loses his way, the, the beauty that he is finding is that 
that God remembers him. That even when he forgets God, God remembers him. In some ways, it's, I think, the, the hope in the heart of every believer that that would be true because we know that we lose sight of who God is. We know that we don't remember him. And in fact, if our faith is built on us remembering him, we're, we're in trouble. We, we need a, a faith in a God that is uh, stronger than our faith. A God who in the moment where our faith is struggling and in the midst of doubt and difficulty, God still holds us. That when the faith has been washed away underneath that faith, there is a rock that doesn't move. There's a God that sustains us even when our faith in him is faltering. That's particularly true, isn't it, when we suffer? We find Joseph in exactly that kind of place here in the context of this passage. A man who has, who has long dreamed a dream. Now, something, of, something in the midst of 10 to 12 years, he has been now away from the place of the Hebrews, his own family, Jacob's family, and he finds himself now, having been sold into slavery and now in Egypt, he finds himself... Not where he would have expected himself to be. Especially not based upon the dreams of privilege and grandeur that he had received many years ago from the Lord. That he was going to be a man of power, a man of, well, of significance. A man that his own family would bow down to and would serve. He's far from that. It's one thing to go, to go through some suffering. It's another thing for that to last for a while. It's, it's another thing for that to last for a while. In fact, often at the beginning of, of, of suffering, though the pain may be difficult, we think to ourselves, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able to get through this. This too, we say, shall pass. But maybe not. Well, what if it doesn't? At least not in the expectation of the time frame that you have marked out in your, in your head and in your heart. And then days go by and months go by and years go by and nothing's really changed. We find Joseph in this passage waiting on God. Wait, waiting on God. In the midst of a prolonged suffering... He's waiting on God to act. Now, it's usually in those moments where we're waiting on God that our faith begins to falter. Where we begin to wonder, is he going to come through? In fact, I would, I would argue that's one of the questions that, that plagues our own modern era. First of all, is God there? And if he's there, is he going to come through? That's really the heart of, well, many of you will know Samuel Beckett's very well-known play, Waiting for Godot, a play written in the, the middle part of the 20th century, but now is, is continuing to just gain incredible um, acclaim. Uh, you, you, dozens and dozens of performances of this play by Samuel Beckett, Beckett Waiting for Godot, are performed every year. And, and maybe you can, you can hear in that language, Waiting for Godot, the word God, Godot, G-O-D-O-T, Waiting for God as Vladimir 
and his companion talk about pain and suffering and difficulty, and they're waiting for this person named Godot as they do, and Godot never shows up. And the play ends with them wondering if there's meaning for life and even attempting suicide. It's, it's real upbeat. Many of us raise that question in the moment of suffering. Raise that question in the moment of the loose ends of our life. The things that don't seem to make sense. In Beckett's own words, the absurd. The things that just seem to be inane and uh, make no sense about our lives. The, 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 The crazy or senseless suffering that goes on and of which we can't make heads or tails of. It would seem that Joseph would find himself in some place like that in the midst of of this text. And yet, in his waiting for God, we see that there's a a different kind of waiting that he does. It's a waiting that, that displays faith in the midst of suffering. He moves in this text, and where the text really focuses our attention is not on merely his waiting for God to do something, but his waiting on others. His waiting on others. Now, I mean that differently than just wait. I mean that in terms of like a waiter who waits at a restaurant. That's a different kind of waiting. We're used to the waiting at the DMV. Right? We're used to the standing around doing nothing kind of waiting so that someone else will act, and then when someone else acts, we'll act. That sort of dependent waiting that is, is not active but passive. That's not the kind of waiting we actually see of Joseph in this passage. We see a, an attentive waiting, a serving kind of waiting, a waiting that, that looks to the needs of those who are around him. Here he is held captive in the the prison, the royal prison, having been there since the false allegation that was made of him with regards to Potiphar's wife and the the, the supposed sexual indiscretion that, that was there. He there now unjustly in this prison. God now, through his providence, sends to him two of the chief officers of Pharaoh. They're called the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, you, you may read like chief cupbearer and chief baker, like really how important are these guys? I mean, they, they cooked some food for Pharaoh. Well, no, you need to think about it in context. This is the ancient Near East. This is a time where, where coup d'etats and um, cons, conspiring to overthrow uh, rulers happened constantly. And when you were a pharaoh, you had a kind of bullseye on your back. People wanted you to do certain things. People wanted you out of power. People wanted to manipulate you to accomplish certain ends. And one of the quickest ways often to get to someone was to poison their food. It's quite interesting in the previous passage where we read about Joseph's work in Potiphar's house. It said that Joseph oversaw everything in Potiphar's house except what he ate. It notes that for us. You think to yourself, well, why, why did you tell us that? Well, probably leading us to this passage. Because we're told here that this cupbearer and this, this chief baker have committed an offense against Pharaoh. Now, we're not told exactly what the offense is, but the word is a strong one in Hebrew. It, Hebrews, it, it literally, in the Hebrew language, it literally means a sin. 
So they've done something wrong. This is not like in Joseph's case where he was unjustly accused. They're there rightfully so. And as they show up on the scene, Joseph is given custody of them. He's the one who's given power and authority over them. And what's remarkable is we see this man who's waiting on God, as it were, to act, begin to wait in a very different sense on others. He serves in the midst of suffering. I think it's worth really looking at the language that's described here with regards to Joseph's serving so that you can see how remarkable the expression of faith is here in this passage. Look at verses 6 through 8 in Genesis chapter 40. It says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, that's the the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, he saw that they were troubled. He asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him, why are your faces downcast? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now let me just remind you of the context. Do you remember where we are? We're in a prison. We're, we're, not in a, we're not in a fancy hotel. We're not in a nice place. We're in a place where everybody's troubled. <laughs> Everybody is suffering. Joseph, arguably, as an unjust sufferer, one who would be plagued mentally by that injustice in a way that maybe a guilty conscience might not even be. The, the pressure might even be more intense for someone like, like Joseph having to suffer unjustly in the manner in which he is. And where do we see his attention go? Immediately to those who are around him. He sees them. Notice the way the text put it. He, he saw that they were troubled. So this is really the beginning of servanthood. It's actually having the eyes to notice the difficulties and the challenges and the sufferings of those who are around you. It would be so easy for Joseph to look out and see troubled faces everywhere around him and think to himself, you know, join the club. Like, get in line. Why do your faces and the troubledness of your faces deserve any special attention or, or any special inquiry? But Joseph here is a man who clearly, as we've seen from Potiphar's house, moving now all the way down into the prison, being put in custody of the probably the chief officials closest to Pharaoh, coming in and out constantly in the moments of his eating... He is the one who's been entrusted to care for them. And his attention immediately goes to servanthood. He didn't just see their suffering. Notice, he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him, why are your faces downcast? He, he queries about it. Think, think how often, right? This may even happen this morning. You're going to run into somebody. You're going you're to see them and you're going to think to yourself, uh-oh, they're not well. And you're going to do that little mental deliberation. Should I ask? Right? Should I ask them? They might actually tell me. You know, God forbid we have an honest moment of interchange. And they tell me exactly how they're doing. And then I'm stuck with like having to deal with it. Right? This happens in our minds and our hearts. Do you recognize this? 
This is what goes on. Joseph, in the midst of a place of suffering, not only sees it, but he queries about it. He, ta- he takes the bold ask. And in the midst of his own suffering, he doesn't simply wait, but he, he moves towards it. And he queries. And as he queries, he's, he's actually told what's wrong. We've had these dreams and we're down here in the prison and there's no one here to help us. And so we have no idea what they, what they mean. And what we see with Joseph in his description, the description of this incredibly faith-rich verse, verse 8, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, here I, I think it's just it's worthy of a, of a very important note. Because Joseph is showing us what real faith looks like. Faith in God is not the promise of a life of ease. But a life that often suffers on the behalf of God. And in and from that suffering serves others as a means of grace. Now that's very counterintuitive. That is very counterintuitive. Let me me tell you how, how we think. God is really for me. My life is going well. And as soon as I get my life together and all the resources, I might actually try to help somebody else. That's how we think, right? Do you see how counterintuitive this is? Joseph actually serves from a place of weakness. He serves from a place of brokenness. He doesn't have resources. He doesn't feel like everything's okay. His decision to serve is actually in the midst and from his suffering. Which, if I can just sort of glimpse, give you a glimpse into this, looks a lot like our Savior. Isn't Isaiah 53... One of the most well-known sections of the Old Testament, the book of comfort about Christ himself. What is he described as in Isaiah 53, but a suffering servant? The one who is doing his greatest work for his people, not when life is great, but when life is at its lowest, when it's at its worst, he's actually doing his best service. He's actually doing his best ministry. Now, if we can peel back the layers for just a second and get into the psyche of how we tend to think, you know, let me get my ducks in order, let my time just be just so, let my resources be as I'd like them to be, let my maturity have grown to a certain stage or step, then I will step out and do something. That notion tends to operate that my best service comes from my strength. That's the assumption. When the Bible has been showing us over and over again, often your best service comes from the place where you're weak and you're broken. Listen, I'm, a, I'm astonished at this, and this has to get beat into me every single week, but this happens regularly when I'm in a situation where I think I, I'm, I'm tired, I'm, I'm emotionally and spiritually exhausted, I can't get everything done that needs to get done, and the phone call comes, and it's time to, it's time to do, right? It's just time to act. And, and often, you know, in the phone call or on the drive or in the meeting, say to myself, Lord, you're going to have to do this. And, and all of a sudden, being so emptied of myself and feeling so needy of his grace and of his presence, do you know what often he does? 
his best work. Because often what he has to do is get me out of the way in order to do what it is that he has come to do. In the midst of this, Joseph is showing us, listen, as we wait on God, as we suffer, as we're in difficulty, it's not always the answer that people need to come and minister to me. It may be in the midst of our suffering and in our difficulty and our, and our overwhelming self-absorption with our suffering that what we really need to be doing is serving others. You know, there's a blessed self-forgetfulness that comes when in the midst of suffering we're called to serve. And you might actually find in the midst of serving from a place of suffering that healing actually begins to happen. Healing actually begins to happen. Now, here, here's the question, and maybe this is rising in your own mind. As he waits on God, and then in a different way, waits on others like an attending waiter or waitress at, at a table and cares for the needs of others, maybe the question is, how could we, how could we become those people? How could, how could we become these people? Because here I'm going to, you know, just not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but pretty much guarantee you're not going to do this unless something changes inside of you, all right? Unless something changes inside of me. We're not, we're not going to be willing to do what we see displayed here on the pages of Scripture. And it, and it comes down to another kind of waiting, all right? We're waiting on God, called to wait on others in the midst of our waiting on God, suffering, but serving in the midst of that suffering. How does that happen? When we learn to wait in faith. When we learn to wait in faith. Now, why do I say that? Well, did you take notice of Joseph's response to the cupbaker? Ah, oh, cup bearer, not cup baker. <laughs> cup bearer and the baker, when they expressed their despair, there's no one here, right? There's no one here to interpret these dreams. What does Joseph say? It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating statement, verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, it's a fascinating statement on a bunch of different fronts. One is because it's so filled with faith. Here, here is Joseph. Now, just think about it. Here is Joseph. Has his interpretation of his dream come true? No. Has over a decade of time passed? Yes. And here he is put in the position of two men who are now experiencing what he experienced a decade ago. And what does he say? Do not interpretations belong to God? I'd be saying to myself, I don't want to get anywhere near your dream. Listen, I had a dream once, and, and then I, it looked great, and my life fell apart. So I, I don't want anything to do with your dream whatsoever. I have zero confidence that God's going to do anything related to your dream. That's not what we see at all. It's utterly faith-filled. Now, here's the other fascinating thing about it. Listen to what, just combine the two comments, verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please share them with me. Oh, Fascinating. Fascinating. Not only does Joseph acknowledge that the interpretations belong to God, he puts himself as God's handmaiden or instrument in the midst of the interpretation. He's bringing together the sharing of your dreams with me as being with God. That God is with me. God has given me the power and the strength to interpret those dreams. He has given to me revelatory power regarding these dreams. Share them with me. It's in the I mean, here he is, here he is seeing their trouble, 
speaking and querying about what's wrong, and here he is moving to alleviate their suffering. I actually have something to offer you, to give you peace. And this is where we see the, the two chief officials, the cupbearer and the baker, tell their dreams, right? All right the three vines, the Pharaoh's cup, the, the wine being in the cup, and, and Joseph saying that means in three days you're going to be restored. Your, your head is going to be lifted up. It's a Hebrew idiom that means um, to, to be restored to power or to authority. You're going to come back into, you're going to be restored to your position and then to the, to the baker who interestingly didn't tell him his dream right away. But once he saw that that guy's dream got a good report and he was like, okay, uh, I'll tell you my dream too. Little did the baker know he was not going to get the same interpretation. The three baskets, the bread, the birds eating out of it meant he was going to be lifted up. But in a very different sense. If he was going to be killed, he was going to be hung on a tree, he was not going to be restored to his position. And, and you know, scholars have noted and, and acknowledged, and I think appropriately so, how, how similar this is to the, to the setting that we see when Jesus is right hanging on the cross. And there to his left and to his right are, are two criminals. Two criminals. One who seeks help and, and gains that help from Christ. And ultimately, he actually uses similar language. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. What does Joseph say? Remember me when it goes well with you. And, and it does go well for that one. And then the other one, right? It questions him and curses God and, and dies. It, kind of similar in terms of its unfolding. But what's fascinating is Joseph's request. That, other than, I mean, that's the bulk of the passage, but really where the passage drives is, is right there in verse 18. This is Joseph's words. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. That's, that's Joseph's request. He's speaking to the cupbearer, and it's a, it's a, again, I just want you to see this remarkable faith. Notice what he's doing. He's making a request on a prophesied future. That's, that's a pretty powerful exercise of faith. He is so sure that God is going to interpret and answer these dreams in the way. He, he goes ahead and makes a request about the future of the cupbearer. Hey, when it, when it turns out well for you, just as I prophesied that it will, will you remember me? Now, if you, if you could hear that, Joseph is already living in the future. That's a great exercise of faith. We've seen Joseph's faith in that God is the power of the interpreter of the dream. And God is with me. We've seen his faith in being willing to serve in the midst of suffering. But you know where we see his faith now? In living in the surety of the future of what God has declared. He's already living there. He makes a request on that future. Now, I think one of the things that's really important to see in this text, a couple of things in this, in this verse, is that word remember. We tend to run past that word really, really quickly, but it's a deep theological term used for the central exercise of faith when you see it displayed in the Old Testament. The whole book of Deuteronomy, for instance, is marked by the word remember. Remember the God who brought you out of Egypt. 
Remember the God who made his covenant with Abraham. Remember the God. It's an exercise of faith. It's really a theologically rich term. And in fact, the Christian life, in one way of speaking, is a life of remembrance. It's a life of remembrance. What happens when we come into the presence of the Lord on a Lord's Day like this, and we're in the midst of worship, and we're harried by everything that's going on, and we're not sure if we can meet our bills, and, and our boss is breathing down our neck, and our spouse does not like us, and our children are running crazy, and we're wondering if we're going to make it through next week, and God speaks, and you go, oh yeah, I forgot about all that. I might be able to make it. What happened? You remembered. That's what happened. You remembered. You were restored. Now, that, that word is, is deep in the way that Joseph is using it here because he, kind, he connects it to one of the richest words that we find anywhere in the Hebrew Old Testament for God's love. It's the word hesed. The Hebrew word hesed. If you'll, you'll notice it, he says, remember me, and when it is well with you, please do me the kindness. Now, when you hear kindness, you think, you know, some of you think, you know, he's just saying, be, be sweet to me, right? Um, you know, have me over for tea or something, you know, we'll have cookies. It's not that kind of kindness, not that kind of like friendliness. This word hesed literally is the strongest word in the Hebrew Old Testament for committed love. It's the word that God uses to describe his love to us. He is a God who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. His Psalm 136, his love, his steadfast love endures forever. When Joseph uses the context of, of hesed or the term hesed connected to remember, he's doing something pretty, pretty deep here. He, he's actually describing... And actually calling on the cupbearer to remember him in such a way so as to be committed to love him unto his restoration. Be committed to love me unto my restoration. Be committed to, to me until I am membered, I am membered again. That's what the word remember means. We, we tend to think that the word remember simply means to recall, like a mental action. It actually means more than that. It means to be membered again. When we member something again, we sew it back in. It was cut off, it was forgotten, but now it's being brought back. It's being restored. That's why when we talk about the Lord's Day as gospel renewal or remembering, we, we actually mean our souls are restored by coming into the truth in contact with the Spirit around the riches of Jesus Christ. Something actually spiritually changes. We, it's not just a mental exercise of cognitive recall. It's a soulish experience of being renewed and repaired, to being healed and being brought back to sanity. When he, when he calls a remembrance into being, he's calling here a, a drawing away from the displacement, the dismembering that's happened to me. Now, why, why do I say dismembering? Well, well, look at the way he describes it. Verse 15, for I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. What's he saying? He's saying I've been cut off. I've been forgotten. I've been dismembered. 
I'm calling upon you to intercede for me until I am membered again. That's what he's calling on him to do. He's asking the cupbearer to be, as it were, a priest to him. To go before me and to mention my name in the presence of the king. That's what he asked. Hey, when you're out of here and things really go well for you, and you're putting that cup in Pharaoh's hand, I want you to say, hey, I met this guy named Joseph. I want you to mention my name in the presence of the king. I want you to be a part of my remembering, my sewing back in, my restoration. If, if you can hear it, it's Joseph actually saying, would you be the means by which my dream is fulfilled? Might it be that God has brought this chief cupbearer, the one who's closest to the greatest power in Egypt, right into the midst of my prison in order to be for me an intermediary who will mention my name in the midst of Pharaoh and will ultimately get me out of here? Do you see the hope? Do you see the faith? Waiting on God? Waiting on others? Waiting in faith. Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. It's a painful way to end this chapter. You know, there's suffering. And then there's waiting in suffering. And then there's waiting in suffering when you have an expectation of getting better. And then you don't. That's this moment. This is about as low as it gets. A decade in, exercising faith, God still isn't showing up. The way that Joseph had potentially conceived of his restoration, his remembering, is nowhere, doesn't happen. Now, what is this text teaching us? Well, it's teaching us a thousand things. And, and I won't take you in a thousand directions, I promise. But here's the one thing that I, I wrote down that I think as we end, part of what this text is teaching us is this. It teaches us that we need a mediator who won't forget us and who will mention our name in the presence of the king. That's what we, that's what we need. That's what we need. That's what this text is groaning for. A mediator who won't forget us. A, a mediator who will mention our name in the presence of the king, in the presence of the one who has authority. That's what we need. We need a mediator like that. And it just so happens the writer of Hebrews tells us we have a mediator like that. That his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. As he, was, as he was leaving his disciples and they were shaken in their boots about him leaving and ascending into the heavenly places at the end of the gospel of Luke. The final words that come out of the mouth of Jesus is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going to forget you. 
And he goes, the writer of Hebrews, and Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, this one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus the Lord, this mediator today stands and lives to make intercession for you. Right now, in the presence of the Father, he names your name as his. Right now. Right now. No matter what pitch you're in, no matter what suffering in, no matter how many decades it's gone by, right now, Jesus stands to intercede for his people. And he knows the suffering because he has gone down to the pit. He's been in the pit unjustly. He was taken from his homeland, as it were, and lived in exile received the ultimate punishment for our sins, not his, fulfilled justice on our behalf, and has gone to the heavenly places where he whispers your name into the ear of the Father, saying, that one's mine. Don't hold that against her. Don't hold that against him. The record is clean. I've paid for it. Jesus is our intermediary. The beauty of this passage is that as we come into the presence of the Lord, waiting on him in so many ways to do certain things in our lives, he's calling us to wait on one another. Because every single person around you in some way is carrying a burden. There's a broken heart in every single pew. And that burden needs to be heard. It needs to be seen. It needs to be listened to. It needs to be alleviated. And for some of you in this room, you're God's answer in that. You're you're the Joseph. But probably all of us in this room, the same people who need the help in the midst of, are also suffering, the ones who are called to serve. And the only way that we can ever do that is if we wait with this kind of faith. That in the midst of the suffering, we have the hope of that future. And the reality of a present where God has never left us nor forsakes us and right now lives to make intercession for you and me. Now, friends, as we consider these truths together, I want to call us to become that church. A people who who do not simply look at the Christian faith as what I can get out of it, but who understand the Christian faith so deeply that it's about a people who have been given so much in order that they can be spent for Christ in the lives of everyone around them. That's what God has called us to. And when you know that you have a Savior who right now is spending himself for you, and that truth begins to make a difference in your life, it's only in that moment that you'll begin to show up with the example of Joseph and to begin to intercede for others, knowing that the great intercession is already happening for you. Father in heaven, we would ask for that. And we'd ask for that truth to become a reality in the life of this congregation. That we would become a people who don't simply look to you or to one another as resources. But we would look to one another and to you as those in whom we love. And are willing to give any and everything for the cause of Christ. Lord, I don't know what all that might mean for each individual soul in this room, but I take comfort in knowing that you do. So, Father, draw close today for those in this room who are dealing with shattered dreams and, 
and are facing prolonged suffering and, and have had their hopes dashed over and over and over again for in temporal ways. Help them now to look to the eternal future. To the one thing that will never let them down. To the one future of the one confident end that we know is in place. The day of that great judgment. Where before the holiness of God, we have a mediator. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Who shields us from the judgment we deserve. And remembers us. Not simply by bringing us to mind. But by restoring us. And bringing us to the redemption that we need. Hasten the day, O Lord. When these realities of faith. Might become realities of sight. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.